right? New year, new chapter. Merry Christmas, right? John chapter 15, all right? John chapter 15. We're not going to get past the first clause of John chapter 15, so don't get too excited. But John chapter 15 is where we'll be. Uh, We'll be here all over the book of John. We look at a lot of verses. Uh, That's kind of our way. Um, John 15. All right, if you're there, say amen. Amen. All right, it's pretty good, pretty good. Making up for some of our folks that are down for the count today. You got to fill in those extra amens. Uh, So right there at the beginning of the chapter we are, John 15, all right? Um, Now, I'm not giving you a newsflash of any kind, but... And I'm not trying to be controversial or cantankerous or any other SAT word that I shouldn't use, but um, we live in a world where being, quote, non-binary is all the rage, right? It's, It's not cool anymore to just fit into one of two things. You've got to be non-binary, you're floating around, you know, it's just in this weird, fluid state. Uh, It's a world where gender can magically be fluid now. You know, I'm 30% male and I feel like 60% female and like 10% plant. I don't know what it is. And um, right and wrong are simply on a spectrum. There's no right and wrong anymore. It's just... uh, a morality of gray. Now, that's what your yin and yang is from Eastern philosophy. You got that black section with a little white in it. You got that white section with a little black in it. And when you spin that yin-yang symbol, it's supposed to become a gray, indeterminate mush. That's what morality's like. And it's a world where we're told there are no absolutes, which is an absolute itself, but we don't want to argue with logic. We wouldn't want to hurt them. But... Um, That's not the real problem. The real problem is this. The world is professing to be non-binary. That's the biggest word in in everything now. I'm non-binary. But the real problem is we live in a world whose creator is completely binary. Our creator God is totally binary. He's a God who created us male and female. That's what he said. I didn't say it. Don't get mad at me. He said it, right? It's a world where we have a Lord who says, I divided the light from the darkness. Says they're different. And he gave us a Bible that he tells us is absolute truth and devoid of any lies. So that's an interesting conflict to be told one thing by the world and hear one thing from our God. We couldn't be more diametrically opposed. There couldn't be more of a disconnect between the God of this book and the world we live in. And at the end of John chapter 14, Jesus says, arise, let us go hence. He's telling his disciples and provoking his disciples, hey, it's time to get up and get going. We talked about that last week. But then he talks for two more chapters. (laughs) And he says in John chapter 15, that first clause, I am the true vine. He points to himself as the true vine for the disciples to bear good fruit. You want to get up and get going? Are you a part of the true vine? Now, I just got to reason something out. If Jesus Christ is the true vine... There must be a false vine, right? If God is binary. So which vine are you a part of, disciples? Which vine are you following? Are you on the Lord's side, the true side? Or are you meandering on the false side of the false vine and the bad fruit that it brings out? Now, the book of John is very interesting because it tells us about Jesus Christ, and the book of John that we're reading actually gives us five true things about Jesus Christ. I'd like to look at those five things, and the message very simply is going to be true or false. True or false. 
is what you're following, is, <laughs> excuse me, is what you're taking heed to, is what you're plugged into, is what you're doing true or false? Very simple. Because our God, we like to hang out in shades of gray. But God says there's true and there's false. There's me and there's everything else. Whose side are you on? True or false? I hope it challenges you, encourages you, provokes you, because it definitely provoked me. Let's pray. Lord, we love you today. We thank you. Help us, Lord, to understand your word, Father. Help us to trust you with what you have to say to us, not what I have to say, Lord. But let it be what you have to say to your church and your people. And if someone doesn't know you as Savior, may they realize, Lord, that you are the true vine. And all life comes through you and by you and in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in the book of John, I'm going to ask you to turn back to chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to look at these five things that the book of John calls true. And we're going to see if you're true or you're false. All right? Okay. John chapter 1. Here's my first question for you to consider. Which light are you following? The true light or some false light? Because we all need light. You wake up in the morning, you go to bed at night, you know, you turn the light on. Because without light, you stub your toe. And not all, when you stub your toe, it feels like you broke your back, right? You know, you want to be able to see where you're going. We all need light. We all need illumination. We all need direction. We all need guidance. We all need counsel. Doesn't mean you're weak. Means you're human. The question is, who do you turn to? What do you turn to? Which light are you following? Now look at John chapter 1, verse 6. It speaks about Jesus Christ coming to earth, preceded by John the Baptist, who announced his coming. And the Bible says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear, uh, to bear witness of the light, capital L, that all men through him might believe. That's an interesting verse for a Calvinist. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth, uh-oh, every man that cometh into the world. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to be the true light for everybody. Now, if Jesus Christ is the true light, there must be another Christ or another somebody who's trying to be false light. Can we make that deduction? Right? If there's true, there's got to be false. Now, the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms, chapter 119, 105, you probably all know the verse, that God's word, that book you hold in your lap, is supposed to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. God said, my word is supposed to be the shining light that shines for you. It's supposed to be like your flashlight. So when you head into a marriage, or you head into a problem, or you head into work tomorrow, you've got some light to handle what the world is going to throw at you. Because the Bible says, the world is dark. I need some light. Amen? Amen. The question is, what's guiding your way? The light of Jesus Christ, or the light of someone else's words? someone else's thoughts, someone else's precepts and principles. You do remember the enemy's name was Lucifer, right? Lucifer means bearer of light. He wants to give light, but the light that he wants to give people is not the true light, it's the false light. You with me so far? 2 Corinthians 11 says, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Right back there in the garden, you say, Why did Eve take the fruit from this serpent? Because you don't know how beautiful that serpent looked. He looked like a 33-year-old man. He looked like Jesus Christ. And no marvel, don't be surprised, because even the devil, in all his evil, can make himself look beautiful, make himself look alluring, make his ideas seem so humanistic and so positive. But it's false light. False light doesn't look like the house is on fire. False light looks like 
hey, that's good for me. Hey, that's good to hear. Hey, I like that. Hey, that's, that's all right. That's false light, right? Go to Job 41. Let me show you how the devil operates. We flip a few verses here. Job 41 is towards the middle of your Bible. If you cut your Bible in half, you'll probably be in the book of Psalms. If you just hang a left, you'll be in the book of Job. And in Job 41, God is giving the longest treatise on the devil. He's talking about him in the name Leviathan. He's talking about this dragon. I was just reminded today that 2024 in Chinese uh, zodiac is the year of the dragon. Very interesting, said the good doctor, right? But anyway, um, Job 41.18 is speaking about the devil. And it says, by his niesings, a light doth shine. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. You know what a niesing is? A niesing is like when you open your mouth to sneeze. (gasps) Right? And when the devil opens his mouth, you think light's coming out. And when the devil talks, it's like the eyelids are opening in the morning. It's like you're starting to see things clear. It's like he's giving you some kind of perception of things. It's a trick. It's false light. You see, Leviathan presumes to give you light. He says, I'll give you illumination out of my mouth, with my words, with my thoughts, through my rudiments and my principles. But you want to see what happens in 19 to people that sit there and listen to that light? Out of his mouth. So that niesing is like when the mouth opens up. And here's what comes out. Out of his mouth go burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals and a flame goeth out of his mouth. Why? Because he's a dragon. And what the devil says, that light that he gives you, you think it's going to give you illumination? You think it's going to lift you up? It inevitably ends up burning you up. It ends up burning your face off, burning your family, burning your hope, burning your peace, burning your joy. And if you're not saved, burning any promise you have of eternal life. You're leaning in for the devil to give you his his illumination. It ends up being a fire that just roasts everything around you. You do remember what the devil did to the first man and the first woman, right? Right? I mean, we know a little bit about the Bible, right? I mean, the serpent was subtle, and he opened his mouth, and what did he do? He said, here, I'm going to do something that's going to ruin your life and destroy man for the rest of time. No. He promised them positive illumination. He promised them advanced enlightenment. He said, Ye shall, your eyes will be opened. Ye shall be as gods. He said, I got some light to give you. God's an old fuddy-duddy. He's trying to keep the good stuff from you. Well, I got the good stuff from you. I'm going to tell you. Just, no, just, no, don't tell anybody, Adam and Eve, but I got something to tell you that's going to knock your socks off. It's going to change your world. It's going to make you be just like one of the gods. What happened? Did it work out good for them? <laughs> the dragon got them banished from paradise in damnation, not illumination. He got them banished from paradise, and he said, I'm going to open your eyes, and they end up in darkness. They end up separated. They end up lost. They end up banished. They end up losing paradise because they listened to the wrong light. That's it. And brethren, you better be very sure as a Christian, or as anybody. You better be very sure that you're following the true light because there is a lot of false light going around out there. And it ain't about, you know, I'll swallow your soul. It ain't a devil with horns and a pitchfork. It ain't like, oh, we're going to go out and party and have orgies. It ain't that. It's false light. It's going to look really good. That's going to be really bad. You know what there's all this talk about now? Chris probably knows in education. All this talk about mindfulness and meditation. Mindfulness and meditation. Mindfulness and meditation. Let's meditate. You get these apps. Let's meditate. Let's meditate. Let's meditate. You know what it is? It's just prayer to the unknown God. It's neo-paganism. We got workshops. I got an email this week about a workshop about gratitude. Go to what Chris got it too from our union. 
Let's have a workshop about being thankful because we know it's important to be thankful. I read this thinking thing and I said, who are you thanking? This is gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's what it's about. Thank you. Thank you. Right? But that's the world. They want to get right up to where God says you should be, but just take God out of the equation. They're making you pagan again. It's false light. We got all this rhetoric, and this one's going to step all over your toes. But all this rhetoric, Americans, about freedom. We got guys like Elon Musk. I want to restore freedom. We got guys like your favorite politician. We're going to bring freedom back. We're going to do this. And I like freedom. I'm an American. I like freedom. I want to vote for the guy that's the least idiot out there. I get you. But they're all talking about freedom and liberty and the Bill of Rights and this and that. And I like that stuff. But they want to promise you liberty without the Lord. That's a scary, slippery slope. It's neo-paganism, people. It's false light. It's not, you know, it's not a pitchfork and horns with fire coming out of the mouth. It's, hey, that sounds really good. Yeah. I want gas to be cheap again. I want to come and go where I want to, where I want to come and go again. I want, to, I want my rights again. I want this. I want that. I want to be able to have the public square and voice my opinions. But they're just very subtly just removing God from the equation. And the Bible says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. <laughs> you don't need your government to say you're free to be free indeed. Right? right? If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So it's a real slippery thing. I challenge you which light are you following? Let's go to John chapter 4. Let's keep going. We could probably stay there all week, but we'll move on. John chapter 4. Look at verse 20. The second question I want to ask you, are you true or false? Which light are you following? Brethren, if you were a Christian, washed in the blood, you'd be sitting in a jail cell for being a missionary and be more free than the richest American walking down Fifth Avenue. That's what God says. No, that's what God says. <laughs> that's the true light. The false light says, no, 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 you got to have your stuff. You got to have your, your bunker. You got to have your guns. You got to have this. And I'm, I'm not saying that's not, there's some, not some wisdom in that, but that's false light if that's where your hope is. Amen. That's not your hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All of the ground is sinking sand. You, you know, your reaction is making me want to stay there. I think you might be more American than you are Christian, right? right? The Bible has a very different philosophy, a very different perspective. The Bible says this world is not our home. So stop trying to build a kingdom down here. Make it nice for yourself. Enjoy it. Go to a park. Enjoy a movie. I'm not saying that stuff is wicked. I like it. But let's remember where our headquarters are. Let's remember where our home is. As Brother Eli said, let's remember where our citizenship really lies. I'm, for, I'm turning this one in in a few minutes, and I got a citizenship above. So the second thing I want to say is, is this. How are you worshiping today? Are you a true worshiper or a false worshiper? Look at John chapter 4. You know why? Because we're all going to worship something or someone as individual and as autonomous as you think you are. You're all worshiping somebody, even if it's the dude you saw in the mirror this morning Everybody's worshiping somebody. Everybody's paying homage to somebody. Everybody's adoring somebody or something. The question is, is your worship true or false? John chapter 4, verse 20. Jesus Christ is speaking to this woman of Samaria. And she says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And ye say, talking to Jesus, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ is correcting her notion of worship. He's saying it's not about a place, honey. It's about a person. 
is not about a mountain, it's about a Messiah. And there's plenty of people that walked into buildings this weekend thinking they went there to worship God and they never did. They walked in a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a school, I don't know, and they thought, well, I'm in the proper building, I'm in the proper place, and God says it isn't about a place. You can worship God in a field like some of our brethren are in Mexico, having church in the park. You can worship God on a houseboat like some people we know in the Philippines have had to do in the past. You can worship God anywhere because it's a matter of the heart, not of the house. There's a plethora out there right now, probably on a, on a Sunday morning, worship services going on and worship teams coming out, you know, they're coming out there and they're just, you know, they're out there and they're doing their, they're doing their thing with their little squad. And you know what? No worship is happening. There's no worship going on. And just because you, I'll turn it around on you, just because you walked in with a King James Bible and a hymn book doesn't mean you are worshiping God either. John 4.24 says a true worshiper must worship God in spirit first. That's attitude. That's heart. That's the quality of it. That's the intention behind it. You know what Proverbs 16.2 says? The Lord weigheth the spirits. The Lord is always looking at your heart. In Job 26, verse 2, Job asks his friends a question, which Jesus Christ may ask us at the judgment seat. He says, whose spirit came from thee? The Lord always examines your intention. So let me ask you without having your answer out loud, why are you here today? Why do you give today of your time or your talent or your resources? Why do you think you're worshiping God today? Just think about it. Might be the first time this year you thought, but just think about it. Are you just, and this is a tough question I got to ask myself, are you just using God to get what you want or letting God get what he wants from you? And that's real subtle. Well, I want to worship God because I want peace. I want hope. I want, you know, comfort. I want a nice family. Those are all good things. But that's not worship. That's exploitation. That's God. You, I'm going to give you an hour or two and you give me something back. That's not worship. Worship is I give to you just for you. That's worship. Because the first mention of worship in Genesis chapter 22 is about a man sacrificing his beloved son. Abraham takes Isaac up on that mountain and he says, me and the boy are going yonder to worship. He had no assurance that he would come back down that mountain with Isaac. He had hope. He knew that God would probably resurrect him, but it was just faith, Right? He said, I'm putting my son on the altar, the son I waited for, this supernatural gift from God, this, this, this gift, this special one that made me laugh. His name is called, means laughter, because he was so, just rocked my world that God would give me this blessing. You know what, God, to worship you, I'm going to give him back to you. He didn't say, I'm going to give him back to you, and God, you just bump up my retirement plan, help my sanity, give me peace with my wife, she's driving me crazy back in the tent. Right? He said, no, I'm going to give him to you. That is worship. True worship is always connected to sacrifice. Because we're worshiping a God who sacrificed his son. How can you worship a God without giving something when that God gave you his very best? You know, I was reading this week. And I was just reading about Abraham, and it struck me, it probably struck you, no wonder God started things with Abraham. No wonder God made him the father of faith. Here was a man that maybe could understand a little bit of what God was going to go through. You're going to give your only beloved son up for someone else. God's like, I know him. <laughs> I know him, and he knows me, because he could taste a little bit Brethren, what I'm saying, and I hope it convicts the snot out of you, because it convicts the snot out of me, 
If your worship doesn't come from a heart willing to give your best to God, who gave his very best to you, it's false worship, isn't it? Look at Malachi chapter 1. I'll show you how easy it is for the people of God to slide into false worship. It's, uh, hey God, I'm here. Did you notice? Did you put my star on my chart up there in heaven? Because I came to church today and it was raining, God. It was raining and I came to church and it was raining. And I had a sniffle and I came to church and I was sniffling and it was raining. That's got to be two stars, God. And I got, I got a bunion and I still came to church with a bunion, a sniffle, and it's raining. I want three stars. I, I, I need a throne in the millennium, God, because I brought my Bible. I may even put an envelope in the offering box. I got a sniffle, and it's raining, and I'm hungry. So a, a throne in the millennium for me. Malachi 1 talks about the people of God near the end of, of their, their dealings with God. And they got so far away from true worship. Look at Malachi 1.6. Look what God says to these people. He says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts, unto you, O priests, that despise my name? And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? He says, what, what do you think we think little of you, God? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. You want the translation? You're giving me junk. You're giving me junk. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible. Oh, it's not a big deal to sacrifice for God. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. Try that with the IRS in a few months. You know, I think you just deserve 1%. And you put it in the envelope and send it off with your tax return. And see if, you know, Uncle Joe and his minions don't come knocking on your door to say, um, no, we need 33%. What are you talking about? 1%. We need a third of your income. What are you talking about? Well, I just think that you deserve 1%. Oh, no, 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 no. He says, hey, God says, hey, try it with your governor. Give your governor the junk that you're giving me and see if they'll be pleased with it. Keep going. Nine. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is therein among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. He says, you priests, you don't do anything for free. You don't serve God with, with expecting nothing in return to be given back to you. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering from my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say, Ah, the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. Oh, Pa, you're telling me i got to come to church? You're telling me I got to read my Bible? You're telling me I got to thank God? You're told, oh man, it's just so hard. It's just so much. That's what they said then. Isn't that what we say now? The Bible is right where you live. That's why nobody likes to read it. And you have snuffed at it. Oh man, you should really love God. You should really give to God. You snuffed at it. Right? You sucked your teeth and you rolled your eyes like a teenager. Keep going. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick. Thus ye have ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Isn't that a tough passage? You know what God's saying? He's saying, you've got ability, and you've got talent, and you've got time, and you've got resources, and you know what you're doing? You're giving me crap. That's what he's saying. I said it from the pulpit. <gasps> Forgive me. 
That's what he's saying. You're giving me this little Shanghai thing out of your flock while you're sitting on some you know, beautiful thing back here that you could offer to me, but you're giving me the junk because like, let's give God the junk. What do we got? I got nickel here. Let's give God the junk. I got five minutes. Let's give God the junk. Let's give God, let's give God the scraps. And if I got no scraps, let him just be happy I showed up. Let's just give God the scraps of my time, the scraps of my effort. God says, I'm a great king. I don't really need your junk. I don't need your scraps. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And I said, you can get in on what I got going on. We should be clicking our heels and thanking the heavens that God would let me get in on what he lets us get in on. Instead, we're just like, oh, what a weariness is there. I just got a lot of living to do, God. John 4, 24. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus said, thy word is truth. So is your so-called worship of God in harmony with the pages of this book? I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe somebody's not in our choir and they're watching online. I don't care about your experience. I don't care about what you felt. I don't care about your relevance. I don't care about what you think the culture needs. I don't care about your pragmatism that this works for you. And wow, look at the results you get. Now you fill the seats. If it's not, the Bible says, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Your worship's got to come from the right heart and be in line with the right book. And if it's not, God says, you're a false worshiper. While naming the name of Jesus and waving your hands and doing all the stuff you think God likes. Let's go to John 6, now that I've made all of you enemies. John chapter 6. All right. It hurt me, man. That hurt me. Amen. To think that, oh, I'm giving it, I'm trying it, I'm doing. And God's like, yeah, what are you doing it for? You're doing it because you want something to be reciprocated? Or just because I'm so great, you want to thank me and offer something up to me? That's true worship, right? Your very best, you know? I had some nights and some days sitting alongside a bed at Sloan Kettering with a son wincing in pain. And the Holy Spirit saying to me, would you give me a son? Been there, done that. I don't know how I would answer. I'm very thankful the Lord let me come back down the mountain with him. I'm very thankful he let me come back down the mountain with him. But what if he didn't? Would he have been a worse God? Would he have been a bad God? If you didn't get to come down the mountain with him? Tough questions, right? True or false? How about this question? Are you feasting on the true bread or some false bread? What is the source of your strength? We're in John chapter 6. Now, the Bible says in Psalms that bread strengtheneth man's heart. And I don't care how tough you think you are, we all need strength. Right? We all need bread. And I'm not saying that because I'm an overweight Italian who likes a loaf of Italian bread. We all need bread. All right? We all need some strength to help us endure, right? The question is, look at John 6, 31. John 6, 31, the Jews are speaking to Jesus, and it says, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Jesus Christ said he would be the source of spiritual strength for the world. Amen? But in verse 31, you see the Jews, they were obsessing over physical things. They were obsessing about what they could see and touch and quantify. And in verse 49, look what Jesus says there. He keeps reminding them that what you see doesn't last, that this thing is spiritual, not physical. It's invisible, not tangible. John 6, 49, he says, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Didn't last. Couldn't help them live forever. Look at verse 58, or 57, I should say. He says, as the living Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. He said, this whole thing about eating, it's a metaphor, guys. It's a metaphor. It's a simile, right? It's a, it's a, it's a comparison, I live by the Father, you live by me. I have a relationship with the Father, you need to have a relationship with me. That's what gives you life. 
Not what you put in your mouth or grab with your hands. 58. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, physical, and are dead. He that eateth this bread, spiritual, verse 63, shall live forever. You pop a five-hour energy, you know what happens? You might feel okay for a little while, but then you crash. It's not long-lasting. And in verse 27 of this chapter, Jesus says, in verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. He's saying, if you lean on things which are seen, you will crash. You will die. You will falter. You will fail. Those Jews didn't get it. They didn't get it. They were a little stunat. They must have been Sicilian. They were a little capados. They, they, had a, they had a thick head. They just didn't. I mean, he's telling them it's spiritual. It's spiritual. It's a relationship. They're like, well, we gathered manna, and we ate it, and we were good. We, we, he said, no, they died. It's not about physical things that you could grab or lay your hands on. They thought in John chapter 8, being children of Abraham would save them. They were leaning on their pedigree. Are you leaning on your pedigree? You're leaning on your family. You're leaning on your social network. You're leaning on your religious affiliation. You're leaning on your lodge membership, your union card. You're leaning on all these things that you could lay your hands on. That's what they were doing. It didn't help them. It's not going to help you. If you were on the Titanic and you knew the designer of the Titanic, because I think he was on the ship, guess what? That didn't help you once they struck an iceberg. <laughs> I know the guy who designed and built the Titanic. It's going down, bruh. <laughs> it's going down. It doesn't matter if you know the king of the world. A ship is going down. It doesn't matter who you know. You need to know somebody above the world. John, 8, uh, John 7 those Jews thought their knowledge would help them. Search the scriptures, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. They thought that their knowledge of the Bible would help them, that their memory verses and, and all they knew of the law would help them. But being puffed up didn't help them. And being puffed up won't help you. I'm glad you could tell me about the divinity of Christ. I'm glad you could tell me about the dispensations. I'm glad you could tell me the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But that's not really going to help you if you don't have Jesus Christ at the center of it. The Bible's meant to be a, a piece of bread for you to get to know the one who wrote it. Not if you just get puffed up, you know, oh, get like a carb coma. Oh, look at all I know. The tribulations, this many years, and the Antichrist is going to have a freckle on his left nostril. Like, oh, I know the deep. That's not the deeper things of God. The deeper things of God is Christ is all. That's the deeper things of God. That's the higher relationship. It's not those Jews back there. They knew the law of the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord of the law. There's a difference. And folks, we study the Bible and teach the Bible, and we'll continue to do that as God helps us. But it's not knowing about God from this book that helps you. It's about knowing the God of this book that equips you and helps you and enables you. This thing has got to be a conduit to building a relationship. As I live by the Father, you live by me. This is the bread, a relationship, a living breath. I could tell you facts about my wife where she was born, you know, what sports she played, what she likes, what she doesn't like. I can tell you all these facts, but that doesn't comfort me. Her person comforts me. Our relationships comforts me. You could tell me why there's 39 books in the Old Testament, why there's 27 in the New Testament. You could tell me how that lines up with the candlestick and shows you there's 39 in the Old Testament canon and 27 in the New Testament canon and about the knops and the flowers and the almonds and the bowls and all that stuff. Wonderful facts. But when you're sitting in a hospital bed or you're staring across somebody who's grieving, you need the person that gave you those facts. You need the, the person of the book, not just facts from the book. In John chapter 8, verse 41, they tell Jesus Christ, well, we be not born of fornication. They thought their self-righteousness would somehow save them. You know what Spurgeon said about self-righteousness? He said, the greatest enemy of, to human souls 
is the self-righteous spirit. There's more people in hell today because of self-righteousness than crack, murder, and fornication. Because self-righteousness is saying, I'm good without you, God. D.L. Moody said, God has nothing to say to the self-righteous. He's like, you're proud. God says, I hate pride. I can't deal with it. Listen, if you're doing right, praise God. But if you're doing right, that means you're doing what God says is right. So if you're doing right, you should be trusting God. Because God, you showed me and told me what's right to do. You know what it's like when we get self-righteous? It's like a poor old woman who had nothing but two nickels to rub together. And she raised her son to be virtuous and honest and have integrity. And he grows up and he gets successful and he gets a job and he advances in the world. And he still lives with honesty and integrity and virtue, just like his mother taught him. But he wants nothing to do with that mother. That's what self-righteousness is. God showed you about kindness, about love, about sacrifice, about virtue, about goodness, about temperance, about faith and hope and love, about all these wonderful things. And then we demonstrate those things in our lives. And then we say, but I don't need you, God. (laughs) He's the one that gave you all those things. He taught you all those things. He lifted you up from the dunghill and made you successful through all those things. And then you want to forget him. That's bad. Look at Psalm 18. That's not my strength. That's not my strength. God is my strength. Psalm 18. Look at Psalm 18.1. Look at David says here, in the midst of all his enemies while he's fighting, he says, Psalm 18.1, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. Is God your strength today? Or is your knowledge of God your strength? Is your understanding of God your strength? Or is God your strength? There's a subtle difference. One is true, one is false. One is a rock, one is slippery sand. Look at um, verse 31 of the same chapter, 31. He says in 31, For who is God save the Lord? Or who is a rock save our God? It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon my high places. He teaches my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. How do you break steel with your bare hands? God has to give you supernatural strength. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up. This is a great line. And thy gentleness hath made me great. That this God, with all this strength and all this power, you've been so kind to me. Oh, man, it would be good to stay right there. And just think right there about you, God, that hung the stars also, and you, God, that made a pit where the devil's going to burn, and you, God, that can open the, the, the lamb and let Dathan and Abiram and all those rebels fall down, and he says, underneath there's all that fire, and you thunder like God, and who has a voice like you, but you know what really got you through today and gets you through tomorrow? That he's been gentle with you. David, this mighty warrior who slayed people and killed the giant, would say, you know what, God, I like about you? You've been so gentle with me. Hasn't he been gentle with you? He knows your frame. He remembers your dust. And he doesn't blow you all over the place. He tries to keep that ship as calm as possible because he knows how easily you could be scattered. And it'll be good for you to just get along with God and say, Lord, thank you for your kindness. Because thy kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee. I will lift up my hands unto thy name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your kindness. 36. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, that my feet did not slip. You know what? I heard a preacher use this illustration one time. You know, I know I'm going to heaven when I die because of Jesus Christ. That's it. I'm leaning on him. And if God says he's not enough, then I guess I'm going to drop. I guess I'm going to fall into hell. I guess that's it. But if he's my rock, I'm not going to slip. And some of us who are saved, look, I look out in this room. I know. I know a little bit. You navigate deep water. You walk a slippery path. There's stuff going on in your hearts and lives and minds that are overwhelming. 
Just lean on Jesus. You say, but, but, but. I don't know the answer, brother. Lean on Jesus. Lean on Jesus. Trust, I'm trying to get this verse this year, guys. I realize how small my faith is, and I confess that fault. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. I know you put in a million cards, but do you know what that verse means? It doesn't mean you believe him when everything's going the way you think it should go. That's easy. It's when, Lord, what is going on? I don't understand. Exactly. Right there. Lean on me, and I'll hold you up. You'll enlarge my steps that your feet don't slip. When my kids were really little and they had to get on a little stool to use the potty or use the sink, we had a little wooden stool and my wife put a little verse on it, hold thou me up and I shall be safe. And if you're standing, if he's holding you up, you'll be safe. You'll be safe. You better get your strength from the true bread or you will fall. Look at John chapter 15. Hurry with me now. Just a couple of stops left. John chapter 15. True or false? True light, true worship, true bread. John chapter 15. What kind of fruit are you bearing? You plugged into the true vine or a false vine? You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, there has been a false vine trying to corrupt man. And that false vine, I'm not going to go into details and speculate things, but I got some speculations. But that false vine is clearly connected to Satan. He's the tree that bears bad fruit. Started back there in the garden. But in John chapter 15, Jesus says, not by accident, I am the true vine. The true vine is Jesus Christ. He's the tree that bears good fruit. So we're all bearing fruit in our lives, right? We're all manifesting something. The question is, what spirit are ye of? What fruit's coming from you? True vine, false vine. How do I get the true vine? How do I get the good fruit? Verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the same way the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. Jesus said, abide in the true vine and you'll bear good fruit. So my question to you is, where are you abiding, dwelling, spending your time, living, fellowshipping, tapping into, connecting into? Where are you today? Adam and Eve were in that garden and God had to say, where art thou? Because they were far from God, even though they were in the same place that God had put them. You got that? You could be sitting in church, sitting in Bible study where God put you and be far from God if you're not dwelling, abiding, fellowshipping, plugging into, living in. Do you spend more time on your phone than you do in the scriptures? Zing, I know, I'm guilty too. Do you worry more about sports and fun than souls and the family of God? You spend more time with lost people than saved people? Something's off there. Do you think more about the bucks in your pocket than the Bible in your heart? Look at Galatians chapter 6. He said, I'm the vine. I'm the vine. My father is the husbandman. It's about sowing and reaping, he's saying. What are you sowing? Because what you're sowing, you're going to reap. Galatians chapter 6, he says this. i got to get there with you. I'm flipping like crazy here. Galatians 6, 7, he says, Be not deceived. Don't be stupid, God says. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to beat the Bible. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And brethren, I don't have anything on my radar, but the Lord laid this thought on my heart. I'm going to say it. I'm going to shoot it out there and where it hits, like a t-shirt at a basketball game. Whoever catches it, catches it. The chickens you are raising are going to come home to roost. The chickens that you are feeding are going to come home to roost. Some of you are doing things in your lives, in your families, with your children, 
even with your body, and if you think you're going to get a pass that those chickens ain't going to come home to roost, you're deceiving yourself. Be not deceived. If your kids see the things of God way down on the list, let me get, let me tell you, let me give you a preview. They're going to be way down on the list, even further down on the list for your children. If they're down on the list for you, just take where you have God and put about 50 spaces lower. That's where God's going to be for them. And they're going to grow up and you're going to look at them and say, why aren't you going to church? How come you don't read your Bible? Well, the chickens are going to come home to roost. If you miss the things of God and you cut out of church for every other thing, guess what? Your children will exacerbate that fault tenfold. The chickens are going to come home to roost. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You sow apple seeds, you get apples. You sow laziness, complacency, lack of devotion, you're going to get laziness, complacency, and lack of devotion. What vine are you plugging into? Verse 8 says, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. He's saying, hey, the Spirit that worked in you before salvation should not be the Spirit working in you after salvation. You had a Spirit working in you. The Spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. He says, it's supposed to be the Holy Spirit working in you now. Listen, if I cut a branch off the vine tree, it can't bear any fruit. It's of the tree, but it's not in the tree anymore. So it's fruitless. And there's a lot of Christians that are of the tree, but you're drying up and you're dying on the vine because you're not connected to the one who's life. You're not fellowshipping. You're not plugged in. And if a believer breaks fellowship with the true vine, he can't bear any fruit. So where's your fellowship? How are you spending your time, your energy, your talent, your resources? Oh my goodness, people, we could turn the world upside down. Amen. We could turn the world upside down. We got the same gospel, the same Holy Spirit, and the same book. If we just had, John Wesley said, give me, um, I think he said, give me 100 preachers who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I care not what kind of people they are, they will turn the world upside down for the kingdom of God's sake. Amen. But we're all too plugged into everything else. All those false vines. Whose life are you living? You're bearing any good fruit or bad fruit? Finally, John 17, finally. True or false? True or false? True light, true worship, true bread, true vine. And the last one is really sums it all up and it's very short, so don't get nervous. John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ is praying in that upper room that his disciples would know the true God. So my question is, do you want to know the true God? Are you content knowing your false gods? Why would Jesus pray that his disciples would know the true God? It must be that we could possibly get too familiar with false gods. Even among us. Even among the little fringe minority of Christianity that holds to the King James Bible and sings the old hymns, even among us, like those little 11 in the upper room over there, we could get caught up in false gods. So he says, I want to make sure they know they have intimate connection and knowledge and intimacy with the true God who gives them life. Go to 2 Chronicles. I got two stops left. Go to 2 Chronicles. Go back in your Old Testament. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. If you could find it, great. If you just want to hear me yammer on, that's okay too. 2 Chronicles 15. Look at verse 1. 2 Chronicles 15, 1 says, And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, the prophet. And he went out to meet Asa, that was a king, and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. 
Now for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. He's preaching to the South. And he said, those folks of you, those 10 tribes that are up there in the North, they don't have the true God anymore. They're Israelites. They're Jewish brothers. But they don't have the true God anymore. How could the people of God be without the true God? Like, how could, we, how could we profess to be the people of God, the church, and not have the true God, not know, not be intimately walking with and connected to the true God? Look at verse 8. Because Asa gets convicted, and it says, And when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Oded, the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin. He says, you know why they got messed up? Idolatry. False gods. So I'm going to make sure we get rid of all the false gods down here in the south. Why? So we hold on to the true God. You know what's going to keep you from the true God? When the people fill the land with their idols. And we may not be making idols of stone or idols of wood, but we're making idols of our own mind. Ideas about God, ideas about life, ideas about relationship, ideas that are not ideas that God said are true. Ideas of our own invention, like a wood carving that you bow down to. God says you fill your land with your idols, your ideas, and you crowd out the room for the true God to guide you, direct you, and fellowship with you. Could the people of God today be following their own ideas instead of the scriptures? Is that possible? You know it's possible because you've all been guilty of it. That's an idol. We're supposed to throw those things down. Why? That we might know and have intimate relationship with the true God. He wants, Jesus prayed that you would know, and, I, and you might know him as your Savior. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, say amen. amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, sit tight. I'll tell you how to be saved in two minutes. But if you know him as your Savior, that's not what he's talking about. These disciples already knew Jesus, but he wanted a deeper more intimate relationship. Like Adam knew his wife, there was a union there. There was an intimacy there. There was a connection there that was special and born out of love. That's the connection God wants to have with little old you. He wants you disciples to know the true God who gave you life. The only true God. Because there's a lot of gods out there. I'll end you in 1 Corinthians 8. I'll end you in 1 Corinthians 8. First Corinthians eight, verse five. First Corinthians eight five. The Bible says, "For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many, and lords many, but to us there is but one God." the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. You see, God said, there are a lot of gods out there. God says, I'm not lying that there's a lot of gods out there. There's a lot of gods out there. There's the gods of money, gods of sex, gods of popularity. There's gods that people worship in the heavens. Well, that's great. There's all kinds of gods out there. But to us, there's only one. Or else there's only supposed to be one that made us and gives us life. So, true or false, who are you following? Who are you knowing? Who are you getting intimate relationship with? The God of the Bible or the God you've made up in your mind? Challenging. Because we think, well, God, God's okay with that, really? God doesn't want that, are you sure? You know, I don't need positive. Is the God the God of this book or it's a God that you've made with your mind? You didn't make him with your hands. You just made him with your heart. That's idolatry. 
You say, why are you saying all this, Pat, about true or false, true or false, true or false? It's that Eastern philosophy that just wants to mesh it all together. You know, you, you know, good witch and bad witch. <laughs> you know, dark side of the force, light side of the force. And you know, we just want to mesh it all together. It's just this, no, God says light and dark, true and false, me and the devil, right and wrong. And it's important because, got so nervous, my voice cracked. At the end of Paul's life, and Paul's, I'm finishing right here. At the end of Paul's life, he said, my life would be a pattern for the church. At the end of Paul's life, he's on this ship. And this ship is rocked and sunk by a storm called Eurocladon, a northeast wind. Something from the east that comes in and turns that ship upside down. And brethren, at the end of this age, the church is being threatened by an eastern wind, an eastern philosophy, another way of thinking, a way of thinking that's new age that just blurs the lines, makes boys girls, makes right wrong, makes God the devil, makes Lucifer the hero, just wants to blur all the lines. That's what's going to sink your ship. You know what you got to do like those disciples? Draw some lines. God at the beginning said, I'm going to restore my creation. Let me divide the light from the darkness. That's where restoration began. That's where restoration begins. When you draw some lines and say, here's God, here's the devil, here's right, here's wrong. Now you pick a side, which side you're going to be on. But stop fooling yourself that it's this meandering shade of gray that you could just hang out in. You are children of the light or children of the darkness. Where are you? In the last days, we need to draw the line between true and false and make sure we, as disciples, are on God's side. The true side. The side we're supposed to be on. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Let's.